Hi, and welcome to Living Unleashed. I'm your host, Alex Runneman. This is a production growing out of my passion for identifying, questioning, and addressing the many challenges I face as an entrepreneur, father, and as a resident of my small Appalachian hometown. From community revitalization to work and business to health and everything in between, join me as we discuss the challenges, but most importantly, search for solutions that may assist you in your quest to unleash yourself and your community. Welcome to Episode 1 of Season 2 of the Living Unleashed Podcast. Season 2, you say? So early? (laughs) Uh, Well, as the rest of the world begins to look at how we come out of COVID-19 and what the world looks like afterwards, we're going to do that too. We're going to turn the page on uh, season one was all about what is this thing? How can we fight it? What's real? What's not? And season two is going to be more focused on what it is that uh, we can do going forward and and what does it look like in this post-COVID world. And so no better way to start that off than with John Deskins, Director of Bureau of Business and Economic Research at WVU. With with John, we walk through, certainly we look at some of the history and some of the economic perspective, but we really want to dig into what does this look like coming out and what what should we be prepared for? And um, you know, John does a great job just kind of weaving through options and scenarios, and, and the, the uncertainty is still all here, but I think having these discussions and looking forward makes sense, and that will be the focus of Season 2. One more note. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate us, comment, uh, drop us a note, let us know you, uh, you're enjoying it, and what you'd like to hear more of or less of, <laughs> who you'd like to see us bring on, and what topics you'd like to see us tackle. And in the meantime, please share and share alike. Share to those who you think might enjoy this or benefit from it. And uh, now, on to Episode 1 of Season 2 of Living Unleashed. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex Renneman at Unleashed Tiger, and I'm here with John Deskins, Director of Bureau of Business and Economic Research at WVU. John, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, so we've, we've interviewed several people. When, when COVID hit, we, we did a series all over how to protect yourself, what is this thing, what can we do, all, all those things. But I really, I wanted to bring you on, and I'm excited you're here to talk to us a little more about what, what's the economic viewpoint of COVID-19 versus, or, or including what's going on right now and, and where we're going. And I know there's, we'll have a lot of those discussions and there's tons of uncertainty, but what are some of the key economic impacts that you see that are, that are right there with COVID-19? Well, first and foremost, I think this crisis has created the, the highest level, level of economic uncertainty that we've seen in a long time, possibly since the Great Depression. I mean, things are so uncertain right now, and I can't think of another time when, when the economic context was, was this uncertain. Uh, of course, that's reflected in the volatility in the start, stock market. You can see the S&P 500 index going all over the place over the past two months, and that's pretty much consistent with the level of uncertainty that we face. But aside from that, the immediate impact is obviously the huge job loss that we've seen. Uh, you know, so for, for economic data, you know, data come out with a lag, right? Normally when we have a stable economic environment with a gradual evolution over time, the lag doesn't bother us that much. But right now we're wanting to, you know, we're very excited and, and, and anxious to see what's happening. So the lag is really a pain in the butt right now. Uh, so we don't even have an unemployment rate at the moment that reflects the current economic environment. But this is what we can say. Uh, if we look at the unemployment insurance claims that have popped up over the past you know, six weeks or so, right now it looks like about 150,000 people in West Virginia are unemployed. Uh, and if you compare that to a labor force, which is going to be around 800,000, then just a simple back of the envelope calculation indicates that our unemployment rate is about 19%. And so if you go back to the last unemployment rate reading that we had before the crisis, uh, you know, February or March, the unemployment rate was between five and five and a half percent. 
So virtually overnight, over the course of a month or over the course of six weeks, unemployment rate has gone from five, five and a half percent to 19 percent. I don't know of a time when unemployment has surged that much in such a short period of time. I don't know of a time when unemployment has come anywhere near to rising that much over such a short period of time. Uh, I will say that 19% unemployment rate in West Virginia puts us at the highest rate that we've had since the early 80s. There was a little time in the early 80s when we had a really bad recession and unemployment was also around 19%. But other than that spell, you have to go back to the Great Depression to see an unemployment rate of this high. During, just for context, during the Great Depression, I don't know what the West Virginia unemployment rate was specifically during that time, but the national unemployment rate was about 25%. So now here we are, 19%, really, really unprecedented since World War II, except for that one brief period. Uh, talking about numbers that are kind of approaching Great Depression numbers in terms of the number of people looking for work. So it's been a tough hit, to say the least. No doubt. And how does that, you, the, the worker participation rate in West Virginia is, is historically not great, right? Or at least recently not great. Would, would, if, if there's a way to factor all of that in, would we potentially... Are, are these results actually worse than, than in the 80s, potentially? And maybe are we, is, is it masking some of where we really were at in terms of worker participation? Well, boy, I can talk about this a lot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much time we have here. Um, so before the crisis hit, uh, unemployment wasn't really a problem. Unemployment captures, among everyone who wants to work, how many people are working versus how many people are just actively looking for work. So, so the idea that people were going around looking for work and being unable to find work, that wasn't really a problem two months ago. Again, a 5% unemployment rate is a pretty good rate by broad historic standards. But a real problem was instead labor force participation. And labor force participation captures, uh, it's, it's a more fundamental, a more long-term descriptor of the labor market. So labor force participation captures among your entire adult population, how many people want to work in the first place? You know, regardless of whether they are working or just actively looking for work, how many people want to work in the first place? So, so nationally, the labor force participation rate was 63%. In West Virginia, we were 54%. We were dead last among the 50 states. A full 9% of our adult population was on the sidelines just compared to the national average. Not in total, but just lower than the nation. And that was a real problem. The fact that just people weren't looking for work in the first place. And so, you know, that's more of a long-run issue, though. Labor force participation is a long-run problem that has been around for a long time, and it's going to take us a long time to fix that. Uh, the unemployment situation captures more of a short-term dynamic, you know, associated with the business cycle and this recession. But, uh, you, know, you know, clearly things are a lot worse now with a high unemployment rate and a low labor force participation rate. That's right. And, and we're recording this on April 30th, 2020. So, as things continue to drop out, I mean, I know states are beginning to reopen, and we'll talk about West Virginia here in a minute, um, but it, it, it could be those numbers could get worse as, as companies say, all right, I've had enough, or the, maybe the PPP program doesn't come through for them, or whatever else. We may see that number continue to grow within, you know, into, into May, potentially, right? Uh, I think it will definitely grow at least a little bit here in the near term. I mean, again, this is the last day of April, certainly over the next two weeks. I think it, it will get at least a little bit worse over the next couple of weeks as the uh, opening backup process begins. But, but, but the recovery is another interesting point, though. For, for example, if you think about the, the last recession in 08, 09, I mean, the recession was caused by a number of problems that were building in our, in our economy, 
that had been building over the course of many years. Some of the problems leading into the financial crisis were building back in the mid-90s with housing and with other uh, factors and policies in the economy. So, so that, that recession was bad, and it took a long time to recover from that recession for various reasons, but, but in part because the problems were fundamental problems in our financial system that took time to unravel. But in this context, uh, I'm not for sure. Like I said, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I'm optimistic that we might have the opportunity for a relatively quick recovery as well. Because here the problem you know, isn't a series of 10 things that have been building for a decade. Here the problem is very clearly the health crisis. People can't go to restaurants, people can't go to barbershops, as we said, et cetera. Uh, I think once we do open up, I think, I think we may be able to, uh, you know, to be reasonably optimistic for a relatively quick recovery as well. And that's that whole, I, I see economists talking about, you know, you've got the, the V-shaped recovery where we, we drop down quick and we can come back up quick potentially, or the U-shape where it takes a little longer, or unfortunately, even worse would be like an L-shape, which would be more around the Great Depression time. And, you know, I, I, boy, I, hope, I hope you're right. I hope, I, and not that you're, you, you know, it's, it's a guess. It's anybody's guess. I'm leaning on that side. Being a business owner, I hope that uh, we are looking at a quicker recovery. And, and there's certainly some data, but, but wasn't our economy, and we were already, when you look at a capitalistic economy from historical standards, we were already at that, at that decade mark of, of, of going to be some kind of pullback in our economy. And, and is there an argument that because this was a force on the economy that wasn't, to your point, within the system, doesn't that bode well also for potential faster recovery as well or, or no? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, for one thing, this was the longest period of economic expansion we've ever had. Uh, it, it, last year, at some point, it passed, uh, passed the record for the longest number of months in recovery that we've ever seen. That said, many of the earlier months of recovery were very weak growth numbers, but still, technically speaking, it was the largest number of months that we've ever seen uh, that the economy was in a period of recovery. But, but also, I mean, recessions don't die of old age. They don't naturally die. I mean, there's always something that happens in the economy that causes a recession. It's not just simply the growth has been going on for a long run, for, for a long time, and the recession dies of old age. There's always something. Uh, and sometimes it's a long time between recessions, 10 years. Uh, other times, recessions happen very close together. We had one recession in 1980 and another recession in 1983. Uh, we've had several instances of recessions happening very close together. So it's, it's hard to say. The economy is so complex uh, and there are so many factors at play, policy considerations, global considerations, public health considerations. Uh, it's, it's hard to make full predictions. And you know, this is, you know, assuming this does turn into an official recession, I'm, I'm pretty confident it will. But, you know, it has to be two quarters of decline to account as an official recession. Uh, but assuming the second quarter is negative and this is an official recession, uh, this will only be the 12th recession that we've had since World War II. So it's not like they're happening all the time to where we can get a real consistent pattern. And, and you know, that, that, is, uh, that is somewhat comforting to know that, that there is, you know, there, there will hopefully be pent up demand as people are let out. I mean, so this isn't a demand issue as much as it's, you know, we, we were all forced, you know, we were forced out and, um, yeah. Hopefully, uh, we can see a quicker recovery. There is reason to believe there will be a boom in some ways when we start uh, getting at it again. I mean, I know, as I said before, I know the hair salon is going to have lines backed up for miles for people waiting to get haircuts uh, once they open back up. Some yeah. things, maybe not, though. Travel, you know, travel has been probably the hardest hit part of our economy. And I think it may take a long time for that to get back uh, because there's a comfort factor, right? Uh, even when you can get on an airplane again, uh, a lot of people may just be afraid to do that. 
uh, even aside from policy considerations. So, so some parts there may be a boom with pent up demand, other parts there may still be a lag. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, of course, I guess some of this is some of it's just lost. I mean, you're not going to go get your haircut three times this week, even though you've missed maybe three haircuts, you're, you're going to go once. And so some, some industries, but, but yet in, in maybe in our industry and others, there, there were needs that they would have spent, but they held onto their cash because they were the, the uncertainty of the market and they'll release that cash later. And so some industries are going to recover potentially better in that way as well. Um, it'll just be really interesting to watch uh, who, what this post-COVID thing really looks like. It's uh, yeah. fascinating. Again, highest level of uncertainty we've seen in a long time. Uh, yeah. We don't know, we don't know when we're going to open up fully. We don't fully know what the recovery will look like, and we don't know. Perhaps more importantly, we don't know if there's going to be a second uh, wave of of infections in the fall, or yep. not necessarily the fall, but whenever mm -hmm. uh, there could be a second wave, which would which could throw the economy into chaos again. So to that uncertainty, I go ahead, I, I monitor my social distancing, I roll into the local grocery store, wearing my mask, doing my thing, whatever, just keep my six feet, going the right way on the aisles, and there's no, there's no toilet paper still. There's no bread here or there. Economically, what's going on with this? The supply chain's got it in there. Why is that the case? I mean, I'm not a supply chain expert. You know, I mean, you know, we have people in the college who focus specifically on supply chain. So everything that I say is kind of more speculative than <laughs> what a supply chain expert specifically would say. Sure. I mean, part of it is, you know, commercial demand versus, you know, household demand. This is also true with the food supply as well. Um, you know, even though people are still probably in total using the same amount of toilet paper, you know, there's kind of production line for industrial type toilet paper uh, versus home toilet paper. And all that, all that industrial type toilet paper is just sitting there going unused uh, and people are ramping up their consumption of home toilet paper. That's one factor. And it's not as easy to switch those lines of production from one to another. Uh, but toilet paper is so stable, right? I mean, toilet paper is probably the most stable part of our economy in terms of how much people consume from month to month. So I would assume that the production lines were set up to produce the exact amount. There wasn't a whole lot of excess capacity in there because toilet paper isn't something that fluctuates really at all until now in terms of consumption. Uh, so, so without any extra capacity in the production lines, because of that stability, uh, you know, when you have people going out and hoarding uh, four, four months worth of toilet paper when they would normally only have one month, then it's just really hard to ramp up production. Um, and it's, and that's a thing, toilet paper is such an easy thing to hoard as well, because you know, you're going to eventually get it. Go right? bad. It's so it. easy to just buy an extra, you know, 24 roll pack, because, you know, even if the crisis doesn't really pan out, you're going to eventually use it. So you're not really going to be uh, at a loss. There's no, there's very little cost in hoarding. So yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, most, most food is in that way as well, where it's, it's manufactured on a just-in-time delivery model based on projections that they've seen and trends. Uh, but you can't you can't hoard a ton of, of milk. I mean, at some point it sours, but paper towels, baby, they'll they'll last forever. <laughs> Darn yeah, near it. Exactly. <laughs> hey, so let's let's talk about so so we we mentioned the the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, a little bit ago about businesses and and obviously there's there's historic unemployment things that uh, that are happening or or, or uh, help coming from the federal government. The CARES Act specifically covers all this. They just put. A, a ton more money into uh, another tranche of that for, for the Paycheck Protection Program. Some people you'll hear, you know, this is where we, we start getting the political ideologies and they start throwing rocks at each other. I'm just interested from an economic standpoint, what is, what is that kind of recovery or stimulus package, however you want to look at it, um, that I think most people would agree, hey, this is, this is fantastic, it's well needed. What is it going to do for us 
economically in terms of how's this going to affect us? Are we going to be paying on this for the rest of our lives and our grandparents or our grandkids' lives? And, or, or is there, help us walk through that from an economist's viewpoint. Yeah, I, I'm personally very worried about the debt. Uh, it seems like a lot of people in the world have forgotten about that problem. You, I feel like when I was kind of coming of age in the 90s, I feel like you used to hear a lot of people express concern over the debt, but I feel like it's been forgotten by both parties. So a little bit of context. Uh, the issue is the uh, U.S. You know, federal government debt that's held by the public. Right? We don't, we don't count uh, the debt that's held by parts of the government itself, like the Federal Reserve or like the Social Security Trust Fund. You can debate whether that's legit or not, but whatever. Uh, the, the, the debt held by the public is a share of GDP. Now that figure was something around 40% relatively consistently for a long time leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Again, it fluctuated, of course, you know, it went down in the late nineties, but it was in that ballpark of 35 or 40% of GDP. But during the financial crisis in 08 or 09, that figure debt held by the public as a share of GDP jumped up to around 70% of GDP. Again, you can verify these exact numbers. I'm just giving you this off the top of my head, but it's in, in that ballpark. And it has stayed pretty much at 70% of GDP over the last decade, even in this period of recovery. And now that we're borrowing a great deal more under these stimulus packages that you just mentioned, uh, debt held by the public is going to go up a lot more. And um, I think it's a concern. I, I do think borrowing is uh, justified in an economic crisis like this, especially when we're talking about a really tough crisis to help boost the economy and to help us get through the short term. But, but we have a problem. I mean, it's going to be higher. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's okay to borrow and stimulate the economy with debt in a period of economic, uh, you know, turmoil like now. But, but that theory is based on the idea that we follow that thinking consistently over the long run. So we borrow and help stimulate the economy when the economy is weak, like in 08, 09, like today. But when the economy is stronger, we reverse course and we either cut spending and or raise taxes and pay down that debt and, and we reduce the debt during good economic times. And if you do that consistently all the time, you should be able to still have a relatively you know, decent budget situation even with borrowing during bad times. But the problem is politicians love that strategy during bad times, but politicians completely forget about that strategy during good times. It's, it's very, very difficult to get a politician to uh, raise taxes and or cut spending in order to reduce the debt. Like I said, we went from 40% to 70% during the last crisis. And then when the crisis ended, we just stayed at 70%. We didn't put any effort into reducing that debt. Now it's going to jump up to who knows what. And, and that gives us less and less room to stimulate the economy in the future. And now, and now but there's a big question though, and stop me. I'm, I feel. I feel like I'm going on for a long time. Well, here. well, I, I would jump in. I, I was just saying, it, it, uh, or I was just about to say, it was. Was it last year, year before? I mean, we. The, I always joke. The only thing they can agree on in Washington is spending money and and borrowing. And we were we were at almost record record uh, economic numbers, and the company doing great. And here we are borrowing money. And interest rates on them, and, and nobody wanted to hear it. I finally, my wife's like, dude, just enough. I, but and, but I, I'm like, I've got to be missing something here because we're in healthy times and yet we're borrowing. And then right around the corner here, COVID's hit. And now we got to borrow again. It's really, it, I, hopefully people listen to it. It's really insightful. I mean, okay, we borrow now. We need it. We all look around. Yeah, we need it. We borrow it. 
Well, the times are good. We ought to be paying that back because we're going to need it again for something. Who knows what in the future? It's a real challenge. It boggles my mind. I think it's very troubling, and I can't believe their political leaders don't have more discipline than that. Well, Um, there seems to be plenty of of economic theory. There's there's folks out there that say, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just just keep borrowing. You're borrowing from yourself. You have to, and I, and again, I this is where my head starts to implode a little bit because I don't quite get that. I don't know where you know. At some point, it breaks down. I think that that kind of model breaks down. But I, again, I don't know. I mean, what we've kind of come to realize is the effect of borrowing isn't linear. Going from debt as a share of GDP from forty percent to forty five percent that may not have the same effect on capital markets as as a five percentage point increase further up the spectrum. We don't really know where that tipping point's going to be. Like if you think about the the debt trouble that uh, Europe got in in re- over the past decade, you know, you know Greece had so 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 much trouble uh, with with worry about capital flight because the the Greek economy couldn't you know continue to manage its debt or service its debt, and so there was really a financial crisis in Greece as uh, as as capital was leaving the country because of those debt concerns. But in that case, uh, in Greece. The, the national debt as a share of GDP was about 125%. So we used to be at 40%. We were at 70% now. We, we were as of two months ago. Greece was 125%. So we don't know where that tipping point's going to be. Right now, we're still okay. People are still happy to lend to the U.S. at very low interest rates. They're incredibly uh, you know, willing to lend to the U.S. at very low interest rates. But there's, there's a tipping point out there somewhere where that's not going to happen and where there's going to be uh, a, a lot of dis- disruption in financial markets as a result of too much debt. We don't know where the point is, but all we know is we're getting closer and closer to that point. Does that make yeah. sense? It, it does. And that, the, the problem is, I think, if I'm accurate, we're not going to know when we hit that point until we hit that point. And then it's going to be trouble. Then we're going to have a lot, it's going to be a lot harder to dig out of a hole like that than uh, it is to keep yourself from getting in it. Yeah, I mean, that uh, borrowing can crowd out uh, private sector investment, which is a big problem for long-term uh, productivity growth. And, and it can just really throw the U.S. government budget in, in, in chaos if we have to pay higher and higher, higher. You know, interest as a share of total federal government spending is already way more than we wish it would, way more than we would like it to be. But if interest rates go up three or four times on those U.S. government bonds, it could cripple the federal budget. Yeah. And that is not going to be a good thing. So if we come out of economic theory and we go straight into, okay, so I'm an average citizen, what do I do? I think the message is if you, if you understand this, at least uh, the debt burden that's being created, and you might, you might agree in this moment, hey, we needed this, it's, it's hold your politicians and your representatives accountable after this, when hopefully we do recover, and hopefully quickly, um, to now pay that debt down instead of continuing to borrow and adding more service and stuff, right? I mean, that's the message. If, if you're buying, you know, you buy the debt, the debt issue is a problem, right? That is the message, but the political environment absolutely boggles my mind. Oh man, I'm with you. Uh, I might have to run downstairs and get, uh, get into my liquor cabinet if we start talking about politics. Much because <laughs> it blows my mind and it, and it troubles me to think about the, um, the nature of politics nationally on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican. It's it, very troubling to me. Yeah, we, we stay out of it mostly here too, because I that looks like a rock fight that I don't want to be involved in and everybody's throwing rocks. It's just uh, crazy. But let's let's go a little bit a little bit local from, from national down to the state. So so looking, you know, you got the, the, the macro, the, the US economy that's that's doing its thing, but we've got West Virginia's got an economy right now. The state is their their revenue just I mean when people are spending money the state's out of revenue. What do you see? What do you see happening in the state of West Virginia? Again, so much uncertainty. But what, when you're putting scenarios together, thinking through that, what does that look like for us? Do you think? 
um, well, you know, we don't have the capacity to borrow like the federal government does during an, an economic downturn like this. So, you know, economic theory really calls for the federal, again, I mean, we just talking about economic theory and how we don't follow it consistently, but it really calls for the federal government to provide a stimulus and to help out uh, in, a, in a tough economic recession like what we're in now, because the states just don't have the capacity. The state just can't go to capital markets and, uh, you know, drive up the debt like the federal government can. I mean, we're very limited in what we can do. I mean, we do have a rainy day fund that we can draw on, uh, and I'm sure we will draw on that rainy day fund to some extent, but we certainly don't want to deplete that fund entirely. That fund is very important to have there for safety. Um, we just don't have as much flexibility. I mean, uh, tax revenue is falling. We have tremendous need for our government services. If we cut back government services, that's going to you know, hurt the economy worse in some sense in the short run. And um, we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And so the federal government really does play an important role in providing that stimulus during the uh, downturns because state governments are uh, much less, uh, have much fewer options available to them. For sure. I, I wonder about that. It's going to be uh, it's gonna be interesting what the federal government will step up and do or won't do. I mean, there, I know there's, I've, I've heard talk here or there and a, any, anybody's guess on that. What, what trends do you see? So again, there, or maybe, maybe again, there's lots of ways this could go, but what are some of the major pivots we could look at or major events? You know, we talk about reopening. That's obviously one. If that goes poorly, could be very bad economically, but but if, if it goes well, or even if it goes somewhat controlled, and maybe there's hot spots that, that are controlled, as opposed to shutting everything down again, um, what kind of economic levers can we look at that think, okay, let's watch this and see if we know that goes well, that maybe this is what our scenarios are. What, what kind of anchor points can you give us as we're looking into the future, which I know is an absolute, you know, pull out your crystal ball, but, but where, where can you guide us in our thoughts? I mean, I mean, I think it mostly depends on, on you know, the, the, the COVID-19 cases. As those cases continue to decline as it, and as it becomes more and more apparent that we have a t contained the virus, uh, I think we'll gradually see more of our economy open up and I think we'll see uh, those unemployment insurance claims fall. I think we'll see the economy get back on track. Uh, I think there's a good potential for the economy just to, just to return to normal in a, in a relatively kind of straightforward way if the virus is contained and if um, the caseload continues to go down as we expect and hope. Again, it, it's going to be industry specific. I mean, some industries will recover more quickly than others, but I think we might see a normal kind of recovery and a relatively quick recovery, but it just depends. It all depends on the public health issues. If we see a second wave pop up in October, I just made October up out top of my head, of course, but if we see a second wave pop up, then we could be thrust into complete chaos again. It could even be worse than the first wave if the second wave uh, creates more fear than what we've seen so far. Um, I don't know. Does that even come close to answering your question? It does. It's a hard question, man. I, that was not a softball. That's, uh, that's tough. I think you're right. I mean, I know governors are probably, the ones who are at least paying attention, are probably really, really concerned about what may happen later, to your point. I mean, you look at the most recent event that's even close to this, I mean, you, we look at the Great Depression from an economic standpoint, but you look pandemic-wise and you go, you, well, you go to the 1918 flu and, you know, the first round of that was, was bad and whatever. The second round of that was a killer and it really crippled. That's where most of the deaths come from. And, and I'm, hope, I'm not prognosticating. I'm not saying I think that's going to be the case here. I think our technology is much better. I think our public awareness is much better. But the reality is, um, I think if you're a governor right now thinking about how you're opening your state, that, that, that history has got to be in your mind or should be when you're making these decisions. Well, and even then, in 1918, of course, uh, the world was much less interconnected, right? People weren't traveling 
as much between city and city, you know, just naturally people stayed at home a lot more just because of the way the world was. And so uh, I think there's even more potential for bad outcomes now, given the amount that we travel and the interconnectedness that we see across the country and the world. Yeah. What opportunities are going to pop up in, in the economy in, in this recovery, do you think? I mean, as an entrepreneur, I'm always saying, what, what are those opportunities? And I'm not looking specifically, but like what industries, what, what individual, who, who's going to find, you know, what are the opportunities going to be and how do you, how, how might you find them in this recovery? You know, I don't, I certainly don't know about all the opportunities, not by any means. This is the first opportunity that I think of as far as West Virginia goes. So first off, we know that a lot of people can work from home now and, and somewhat effectively. Uh, I mean, I've been, this makes seven weeks that I've been working from home and I haven't been quite as efficient, but I've mostly gotten my stuff done. And, and that varies across industry, but I think a lot of people now see working from home is a viable alternative and employers, employers are seeing that as well. Second piece is uh, the worst uh, affected part of the country is New York City, right? The most densely packed part of the country has had the worst suffering from this pandemic. I'll tell you one thing, I don't want to be in New York City or anywhere near that. I didn't want to be in New York City. I'm a country guy. I like living in the mountains and looking out and seeing 125 trees on my property. I didn't want to be in New York City before this crisis, but I want to be in New York City even less now that this crisis has hit. Uh, and I think a lot of people might see that they would kind of prefer to move away from these bigger cities to more, uh, more rural areas. Maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't, but I think it's at least a reasonable thing to speculate on. But, but it, there was already some trends that way, right? I mean, people were already, there were, there were some trending data that people were wanting to come to smaller communities, more rural communities. Um, I wonder the same as you. I wonder if this doesn't potentially create, uh, you know, grow that wave. I don't know. Yeah, no, it could create a potential opportunity for West Virginia to, to bring in, you know, relatively high income people who have good jobs, who are telecommuting to jobs in Washington or, or somewhere else on the northeastern seaboard. Uh, but instead they work here in West Virginia, see the beauty, uh, enjoy the nature, live in a less uh, urban, a less chaotic environment. I think there's a real potential for that, but who knows if it'll play out or not. Although that is dependent entirely on good internet. Uh, yeah. you know, it's not gonna happen in Pendleton County unless they have a good internet there. It's only gonna happen in places where there's good internet. Yep, that's a great point. I always, you know, just kind of closing out here, I always like to read anything that happens, you know, and I don't want to ignore the strife and the death and the suffering that people are going through in any situation and certainly in this pandemic, uh, notwithstanding that said, what are, what can we take from the, what, what, what's happening? That's, uh, that's maybe interesting or hopeful or that we can be grateful for from this experience that you can see from you, from your viewpoint. My main thing is kind of just to recap what I said before. I mean, the cause of this crisis is very well defined. The, the cause of this crisis is more clearly defined than any other recession that I know of in modern history. And if we can eliminate that cause, I think the economy can get back to normal relatively quickly. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I remain pretty optimistic that we can have a decent recovery in terms of the speed and the magnitude. We don't know, but I, I, I'm, I remain optimistic that we can get back to normal pretty quickly as long as that second wave is eliminated. Awesome. John Deskins, Director, Bureau of Business and Economic Research at WVU. Uh, thanks, man, for coming on the show. I appreciate uh, appreciate you coming in and giving us some insight from an economic perspective. And uh, obviously, stay stay safe and healthy and all that good stuff. And as we reopen, good luck. Thank you so much. Glad to come on. Ha call me back anytime. I'm always happy to help out. Great. Thanks. Thank you.